1: In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Hebrews, chapter 13.
0: And the phrase brought up um, signifies the restoration as being made more em- emphatic by stressing the depths from which Jesus was brought up. It shows that victory was attained after the defeat of death was suffered. It wasn't a mock. It was a real death that he was brought from. The dead. The fact that he could raise Jesus from the dead itself shows that he can meet anything you might have. Not just the listener of Hebrews then, the reader of Hebrews today. Our Lord Jesus emphasizes the deity, emphasizes humanity. He's the God-man. He's our Lord, and he's Jesus. You see, there's both. That great shepherd, what does that mean? Okay. That's the relationship of the Messiah to the flock, and there are three psalms that amplify this for you together. Psalm 22, 23, 24 are the shepherd psalms. The job of the shepherd is what? To meet the needs of the sheep. And he can meet every need that is created by their trials. The suffering Savior, the Savior is what Psalm 22 is all about. And that correlates with the good shepherd in John 10, first 18 verses. The living shepherd in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, and so on. And that correlates with the great shepherd here in these verses. And the exalted sovereign in Psalm 24. That's the chief shepherd. So we've got the good shepherd, the great shepherd, and the chief shepherd in Psalm 22, 23, 24. I encourage you to mark those. Use them for a devotional time as you're reviewing these notes. Now the God of peace that brought again from our dead Lord Jesus and the great shepherd of the sheep brought through through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Their needs are met, how? By the blood of the covenant. That's the basis on which he now deals with each of us. That's on the basis of that covenant, a new covenant. Make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. Making you complete. Perfect in the sense of being perfected or complete. Okay? And uh, supply, supply whatever's lacking and to correct anything that's faulty. He's able to do that. He can equip for every good work. Make them complete. The word perfect is really the concept of complete. To do his will. That's his purpose. That's God's purpose, and equipping you so that you can do his will. Working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight. So, God is working out his own pleasure in the believers. Through Jesus Christ, that's the means by which he does it. And, uh, and, he's, and he's the one that's doing it through this one. To whom be glory, and then there's a praise. Obviously, a final exalted praise. Okay. Now, the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of everlasting covenant, make you perfect at every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. There are many churches that close their service with that benediction. Benediction. Okay. Five features of maturity summarized here. The scope. Must be perfection in every good work. The goal is to do the will of the Father. The source is uh, God working in them, which is well pleasing in His sight. The means is through the Messiah, Jesus. And the end result, of course, is to do what? Glorify God. Anything in your life you're doing that isn't glorifying God is wood, hay, stubble. Hmm? Then you get to verse 22. You thought we threw it, didn't you? And I beseech you, brethren, suffer the word. Of excitation, for I have written a letter unto you in few words. You're probably saying, it didn't seem like a few words to me. Huh? Well, first of all, notice, I beseech you, brethren. Realize, again, throughout this entire epistle, you're reminded again and again, that the listener is, be- they're already believers. They're not unbelievers. I've written to you a letter in a few words. And he's not saying that they're few in number. What he really means, he could, be, he could continue there's much more to be said is another way to say the same thing. It's not that this is short. It's certainly not a short little note. But it's just the tip of the iceberg. He'd go on much more with many more words. Is the way we might express the same idea. Know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty, with whom if he come shortly, I will see you. So he's going to come, if he can, with Timothy. He's released. Okay, together? That's profound. It it stuns me to see the volume of commentators that choose to attack the idea that Paul wrote this letter. And I'm not saying there isn't a possibility with somebody else, but all the evidence points in one direction from 20 different points of view. There's another confirmation right here. Timothy, he was one of the best known of Paul's companions and fellow laborers. He was evidently one of Paul's own converts as the apostle describes him as his beloved and faithful son in the Lord. That's Paul's phrase all through three of his letters. It's evident that his mother Eunice was converted to Christ on Paul's first missionary journey to Derby and Lystra, and it was on the second one that he picks Timothy up and picks him up, takes him along. And Apostle Paul, you know, obviously was pretty impressed with this young guy, and uh, he took and circumcised him so that he might conciliate the Jews. So his, since his mother was Jewish, um, uh, Paul made sure he was circumcised so it wouldn't interfere with his ministry. And Timothy went with Paul through Phrygia, Galatia, Mysia, and to Troas and Philippi and Berea in Acts 17. Then he follows Paul to Athens and was sent by him with Silas on a mission to Thessalonica in Acts 17. And, and we find him in, at Corinth with Paul. And again, notice the apostle he's not, with, uh, uh, in Ephesus. Then he's sent on to Macedonia. He accompanied Paul afterwards into Asia where he was with him for some time. He, all the way through, who's at his elbow? Timothy. apostle was a prisoner at Rome. Timothy joined him in Philemon. And where it appears he also suffered imprisonment. That is, Timothy also was imprisoned. Okay? The last notice of Timothy is, is Paul's request that he should, quote, do his diligence to come before winter and bring the cloak that he left at Troas. In which in the winter would mean very much to Paul in his dungeon about A.D. 67, which is about a couple of years after this epistle was written, by the way. This one, I mean the one we're reading. According to tradition, after the apostle's death, Timothy settles in Ephesus as a sphere of labor and it found an early martyr's grave. Eusebius makes him the bishop of Ephesus, and if that's true... Then uh, John's residence and death must have been later. Okay, Sepphoris reports that he was clubbed to death at Diana's feast for having denounced the licentiousness. That's just a uh, church father tradition, apparently. It was Paul's custom to associate with his own uh, associate with his own name, that of one or more of his companions in the opening salutations of his epistles. Okay, Timothy's name occurs in Second Corinthians. Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon as as being associated with Paul there. And then also in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, he's also associated with them even though they have a professional shorthand writer by the name of Silvanus. Continuing, salute all them that have rule over you and all the saints. They of Italy salute you. Now the logical thing is he's probably writing it from Rome. Okay, but some people think, well, he probably wasn't, but Doesn't matter, he must have had some Italians at his elbow anyway, okay? They are present with the writer, either inside or outside the geographical borders. who knows? And so, but this does seem to suggest an origin during the first imprisonment from which, after two years, he was subsequently released in the spring of 63 AD. That's the first imprisonment. And this would have been, the the, the, uh, writer of the Hebrews is is 63 or 64, okay? Same period when the prison epistles were also written. Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, So Philemon was in that time. Grace be with you all, amen. Last verse. And that carries more meaning than most people are aware of. Grace be with you all. Why am I making a big thing of that? Because I think this is communicating more than is widely appreciated. Paul speaks in his other letters of a personal Mark. And uh, you need to understand especially to his earliest epistles apparently were the Thessalonian letters. He wrote the first Thessalonian letter, then apparently a forgery of his, a letter by him was being circulated, and second Thessalonians I facetiously often call third Thessalonians because it's there to refute this forgery floating around, okay? That's, you won't understand second Thessalonians unless you understand what the forgery apparently was promoting because it puts that all down, Okay. Now, once you realize that there were forgeries, several passages start to make more sense. At the end of that letter, the Thessalonian letter, Paul includes a, short, a private mark, a personal token so that they will know it's from him. In 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 17, the salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token of every epistle, so I write. Now he's emphasizing this probably because the rest of the letter was drafted by a professional stenographer. Amen,uensis, amanuensis, if you will. But he would also include his private mark, so that they would know it was really from him. Okay? What is this token? Well, the salutation, of Paul, my own hand, so I write, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, amen. Why is that so significant? That signature style is included on every letter Paul writes. In Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st Thessalonians, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, the whole gang, all have the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. We see that so much, we don't realize the inverse. How does Hebrews end, of course, that way, doesn't it? Why is this so impressive? Because the word grace does not even appear in any of the other epistles. There's one exception, it does appear in Peter, but not as a salutation, as it is here. Paul's the only guy that does that. And he always did it. So when I find it in Hebrews, I think that's not accidental. Okay. Not only that, though, getting back to this Pauline authorship, I'm fascinated because in Peter even talks about Paul's letter to the Hebrews. On account of the long suffering of our Lord, salvation, even this is in Peter's second letter, chapter three. Even as our beloved brother Paul is also according to the wisdom given unto him hath written unto you. Peter's writing Hebrews. He's alluding to the fact that Paul has written to them, the Hebrews. As also in all his epistles, speaking of them and of these things, in which some things are hard to be understood, <laughs> which they that are unlearned and unstable rest as they do also the other scriptures to their own destruction. Here's Peter making an allusion to a letter that Paul wrote to the Hebrews. If the epistle of the Hebrews ain't that letter, then we've lost one. Somehow. Because Peter makes reference to a letter by Paul to the Hebrews. And there's lots of reasons why Paul wouldn't normally do that, because he's the apostle to the Gentiles, not the Hebrews. But that also helps explain why he didn't sign it. Written unto you, to the Hebrews. And uh, Peter's first and second letter were to Hebrew readers. But it's also interesting, Peter also puts Paul's writing, Peter now is putting Paul's writing in a category of Holy Scripture. They do also in the other scriptures. In other words, he's ascribing Paul's letter as being scripture. We take that for granted, but I'm pointing out there are people that quibble with that. They have a problem with Peter. So, what do we know about the author of Hebrews? He was a Jew acquainted with the details of Mosaic ritualism, obviously. He was acquainted with Greek philosophy. And Paul was a brilliant, fabulous. He had been in prison in a locality where the one's addressed resided. He was at that time in prison in Italy. Timothy was his companion and messenger. Paul was in Rome in prison. He used Timothy to carry messages and sent him on a trip from the west to the east. He hoped to be liberated, obviously, and he ultimately was. This is the same thought that's expressed in Philippians and Philemon, obviously. Paul also uses the Greek word huios as sons rather than a similar Greek word, the technon. Which the other writers use, which means children. The other writers use children, like the children of Israel. Technon is the Greek term. Paul uses huyos. They're almost synonyms, not quite. The doctrine discussed in Romans 8:16 and Hebrews 10:15 are in sync. The doctrines discussed in 1 Corinthians 3 and Hebrews 5 are in sync or collinear. The writer says, pray for us, and he's the only one that does. Here's a list of representations of, that are found in Hebrews and in Paul's other epistles that are not found in the works of the other New Testament writers. Compare. Hebrews 1 with 2 Corinthians 4 and Colossians 1. Hebrews 1, 4 and 2, 9 with Philippians 2, 8 and 9. Hebrews 2, 14 with 1 Corinthians 15. And we could go right on through all of these. For the sake of the audio, I'll point out Hebrews 2:14 to the 1 Corinthians 15. Hebrews 7 with Romans 2 and Galatians 3. Hebrews 7.26 with Ephesians 4.10. And Hebrews 8.5 and 10.1 with Colossians 2.17. The point is, these are comparisons where uh, the allusions fit that are not found in the other New Testament writers. So that's kind of interesting. And then there's Hebrews 10 verses 12 through 13 with 1 Corinthians 15.25. Okay. There's another little more subtle, but I think interesting one. And in back in Hebrews chapter 10, there were two quotes from Deuteronomy. From Deuteronomy 32, 35 and 32.36, two adjacent verses, each quoted. Verse 36 is quoted exactly from the Hebrew. However, verse 35 is not quoted exactly from the Hebrew, but rather from the Greek Septuagint, a slightly different summary way of expressing the same thing. And the quotes in he in Hebrews 10:31 happens to be. From neither. The author is using his own rendering of the text. He is really not a big deal, except that this, there's only one other place that the same phrase occurs. And that's in Romans 12. It's a legitimate way of summarizing, but it happens in that way to be in two places. In Hebrews and in Romans 12. A, a subtle fingerprint, but I think it's nevertheless a fingerprint. The author of Romans quotes it the same as the writer in Hebrews quotes it. There's another suggestion that Paul's fingerprints are on the epistle to Hebrews. Okay. In Romans chapter 8, Paul lists a number of things that cannot separate you from the love of Christ. He lists seven things and adds 10 more, right, for a total of 17. In Hebrews 12, we find a similar list. There are seven things and then 10 more for a total of 17. In Galatians 5, 19, 21, there is a list of 17 things. Just structural things, but they evidence a stylistic um, similarity. Well, now I want to shift gears. We finished the epistle. Let me tell you something that happened afterwards. Do you know that this epistle has a happy ending? Paul's passion was to get his Jewish believers to leave their Mosaic Judaism behind and get out of town, get out of Jerusalem. That's over. Fortunately, there are three ancient writings, which if by pooling them together, you can find out what actually happened from A.D. 64 through A.D. 70. Josephus was a first century Jewish historian, and he's an unbeliever as far as Jesus is concerned. He was an eyewitness of the events of A.D. 70. That's why his records are so valuable to us. Egesippus was a Jewish believer who lived in the 2nd century, and Eusebius was a Gentile Christian who lived in the 4th century, and their, their records are very valuable to us. All three wrote concerning the events that occurred from AD 64 through 70. You need to understand there's a region east of Israel called the Decapolis, it's a name given to a region that occupied by a league, an organized league of ten cities. That's why they call it the Decapolis. They're mentioned in Mark 4 and Mark 5 and 7. Matthew 4 and Mark 5 and 7. Now these combination of Greek cities arose as Rome assumed dominion in the east, and they, arose that they got into a league to promote their common interests in trade and commerce and other things, and also their mutual protection. They're in enough, a rough neighborhood. This region is a tug-of-war going on between Rome and the Parthian Empire. So these cities band together to give them some stability of their own here against all the surrounding peoples. They were independent of the local tetrarchy and answerable directly to the governor of Syria, which is to the north. They enjoyed rights of association and asylum. They struck their own coins. They paid the imperial taxes and were liable, of course, to military service, and they're recorded all through the ancient writers. Okay. These are the ten cities. Damascus, by the way, was one of them. Quite a ways up there, further. But the one we're interested in is listed number four on this list. It's about eight miles east of Beth Beth-shan. Bethshan was called Scythopolis, and it's the only one of this group that is west of the Jordan River, by a wee bit. A little south of of the Sea of Galilee. I'll show you a map here in a minute. In fact, this is probably the place to do that. Okay. there, The top lake is, of course, Gennesaret, or we call it the Sea of Galilee. But down below is the northern tip of the Dead Sea. Jerusalem is spotted here for a frame of reference. But there you see the cities of the Decapolis. Damascus is off the scale in the upper right by the ways. Now, what happened because of the hebrew the, the letter to these hebrew believers is they got out of town and they went to a place called Pella which is of the Decapolis they waited out during the, from 64 to 60 to uh, from 64 to 66 they split out there and they waited out the war in Pella the four years that Rome was crushing the Jerusalem okay Eight miles southeast, when Alexander c- conquered the Holy Land, some of the veterans settled in this area. And this reminded them of the birthplace of Alexander so they, uh, and the capital of Macedonia, so they named it with a Greek name, Pella. It became part of the Roman Empire, of course, under Pompeii from 64 AD on. That's all in, in Josephus. When these Jewish believers received the letter, they read it and they obeyed. They made their break with Judaism once and for all, made it complete. Within a two-year period of time after the letter was written, the first Jewish revolt broke out in AD 66, not by them, but by the Jews that were foolhardy enough to uh, attack the Romans, which were ready to jump on them. And at that point, the entire community of Jewish believers, numbering tens of thousands, over 20,000 just out of Jerusalem, by the way, left the country, crossed the Jordan River to the east bank, went up to the city of Pella, one of the cities of the Decapolis. Four years later in 70 AD, the war ended in Jerusalem with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. So Judaism was over. And as I say, about a, just as Jesus predicted in Luke 19 and on 21, we'll talk about that next time, a total of about a, from 1.1 to one point, there's different estimates, but call it a million and a half Jews, were killed in that Roman conflict, men, women, and children. But apparently, according to three of the early authors, no Christians they had all split in accordance with the instructions of this letter and the direct instructions of Jesus that we'll look at next time. So here's a happy ending here. Because of these three, these three ancient writers that I mentioned indicate that not a single Jewish believer lost his life in that conflict because of their response and their obedience to the epistle of the Hebrews. And of course, some of them can be attributed to the instructions of Jesus, issued in Luke 21. And don't confuse Luke 21, as most people do, as part of the Olive Discourse. I'll show you the differences next time. Now Pella, by the way, what happened later? Pella remained a strong Christian city after receiving the refugees fleeing the the Roman persecution. It also hosted many monasteries, all during the uh, uh, Byzantine period, for 1,400 years, until finally, correction, In the 7th century, when it's overrun uh, uh, by the Persians and the Muslims, uh, it gets rough. Okay, so much for the study. A final addendum that we'll include in the package on Hebrews. We'll devote a, we'll put an appendix to all this, an addendum, if you will, to a review of Luke 21. We do that for a couple of reasons. It fits the situation because the same issues are involved there. But secondly, it'll also clear up a lot of confusion most people assume that Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and Luke 21 are the Olivet Discourse. It turns out they're not the same. Di- same speaker, different audience, different occasion, different message, strangely enough. And, and if you understand that, I think you'll find it very rewarding. So we'll take a look at that next time. Not to be confused. Both ac- I want you to read both accounts for next time. Matthew 24, primary, Mark 13 and Ma- Matthew 24 are virtually identical except one, for one subtlety in one verse. Read Matthew 24 and Luke 21 for next time and notice the differences between them. Are those differences significant? If so, why? And more importantly, how is that difference helpful to you and me today? It has implications for each of us today. So that's, the, that's for next time as our final wrap-up of this study. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. let's borrow our hearts. Father, we thank you that you are a God that provides. We thank you, Father, that you provided the refuge for your people back then. And we thank you, Father, that you provide the refuge for your people today. We do pray, Father, that we too might prove faithful in obeying your commands to each of us. Father, we would ask that you would illuminate the path before each of us that we too might be more effective stewards of the opportunities you bring across our path. We pray, Father, that you would help each of us to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. We pray, Father, that through your word and through the ministry of your Holy Spirit that we too would continue to progress towards maturity that you would complete in each of us The work that you've already begun as we commit ourselves without any reservations whatsoever into your hands in the name of yeshua our great shepherd our chief shepherd our redeemer in whose name we do pray amen
1: you've been listening to 6640 the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on one 800 khouse one To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org.